Titus chapter 2, verse 1, But as for you, speaking the things which are proper for sound doctrine, in contrast to the people who would not, that the older men be sober, uh, uh, reverent, uh, temperate, that is, self-controlled. So, as you're teaching these people, Titus, as you're leading them, as you're instructing them, uh, you need to do it in such a way that you know people have a firm understanding of this idea of of being you know not. It has the idea of being um, sober, literally not drinking, but it's more significantly talking about being serious, and the idea of reverent fits in with that. Someone who you know, has a real respect uh, for the word of God. The older men, you know, he's uh, speaking in a generic sense. He's not saying that the younger men shouldn't be sober. Uh, You know, it's the idea of once you've sort of crested past your youth, (laughs) you know, you should be more serious about your life and about your circumstances and about especially the things of the faith and the things of the Lord. And, uh, you know, you would assume almost that, uh, you know, an older gentleman would be uh, temperate. The idea is self-controlled. But, uh, you know, it's it's possible to find uh, people that are, you know, slightly older who uh, still haven't learned that, who, who don't function in a sense of, of uh, you know, controlling themselves and uh, having a handling on their own conduct. You know, they may, you may know someone who's older who has a short temper, who is irresponsible with, uh, you know, the things in their life that as far as, you know, being temperate and self-controlled, when you think of them, that's not what immediately comes to mind. And, and he's saying, you know, that, that shouldn't be the case. If, if you're a Christian and you've been walking with the Lord for a period of time, then it should be that this is what you're known as. It's, you know, someone who is sober and uh, reverent, temperate, self-controlled, sound in faith. Um, you know, we run into all the time uh, people who have been in other belief systems and other religions, I mean, I'm doing other than Christianity, who come into Christianity and they're, they're bringing that baggage with them. And so their faith is not sound. They, they have other things intermingled with it. You know, um, most recently uh, dealing uh, with a person who, you know, coming out of the new age, you know, they're coming out of that whole Eastern mysticism and, you know, they don't realize Christianity, Christianity doesn't align with that. They're trying to just like, you know, that's like the next layer for them. They were in the new age and into, you know, all of that stuff. And now they're in Christianity and they're just trying to put that, you know, into their belief system as like the next layer. And it it doesn't work. You know, these are mutually exclusive to one another, and, and we need to learn that, that, uh, you know, the, the, the truth of God's word, you know, may at times have overlapping truths, but, you know, the Christianity and faith in God, that's, that's all true, you know, 100% pure. 
whereas, you know, another belief system, you know, Buddhism may have certain truths in it that overlap Christianity. You know, like one of the basic teachings of Buddhism is that you need to work hard. You know, they have a, they have a, a proverb about uh, chop wood and carry water every day. You know, like, like be diligent is the idea. You know, do the basic things in life that you need. Don't be lazy. But there's also, you know, the teaching that Buddha was, his mother was a virgin and that he was born through virgin birth and that um, he, you know, he, when he was given birth to, he could immediately stand and walk and speak. Then they say he walked to the four sacred points, meaning, you know, north, south, east and west and claimed it as his creation. Now, keep in mind that didn't happen. And Buddha never claimed that. And he never taught that. That was something that did not emerge into their belief system until after Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. And it became obvious that he was the God of all creation. And John is saying that all things were created by him. And the Buddhists followers at that point are like, yeah, and us too. So, you know, there, there are things that are lies and that are fake. And so while you find points that overlap and you go, oh, well, that's neat, you know, chop wood, carry water every day, right? Be diligent, hardworking. Uh, that's a lot of what Christianity teaches. You know, we have a passage that says, if a man will not work, neither sh should he eat. Oh, those sound similar. But yet so much of the belief system is profoundly different. So, you know, someone who's older, uh, he needs to be reverent, temperate, self-controlled, of sa sound in his faith, in love and patience. And then he says, the older women, likewise. Now, we touch on some subjects here that a lot of pastors just freak out about even sharing because our culture is so far away from this mindset. But, uh, I'll just have to dive headfirst into these things. Number one, women do get older. As much as, uh, you know, we'd like to say they don't, and, you know, they're just, you know, seasoned and beautiful and uh, whatever. Women get older. And uh, within that, there's actually a reverence uh, that should come from them and for them. The older women likewise, so in all of the similar manners, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers. You know, shouldn't be, uh, you know, sharing things about people that are not true. And in fact, uh, some of what's said is you shouldn't even be sharing things with, you know, others that are true. You know, you shouldn't be talking about people. Don't be slanderers. Not given too much wine. Um, contained within that statement is not given to drunkenness at all, okay? Uh, the, the much wine uh, isn't like what we think of. I wish that, you know, I don't want the Bible to be rewritten, but, um, you know, wine at the time, we've talked about this on a few different occasions, was what they refer to as table wine. So they would take water, and uh, they would mix it in various uh, ratios, 
with wine, which was not distilled. It was simply fermented. Okay. So we only get the higher percentages of alcohol in wine through a distillation process. Simply letting grape juice age uh, does create alcohol, but it doesn't generate the same level of wine we have today. Uh, in their culture, you know, to distill or create things that were a stronger drink, they, they would have viewed that as strong drink. And, you know, the people who consumed that stuff were on a different level of uh, drunkenness in their mind. Uh, the wine that they commonly drank, uh, various mixtures, usually at least 50-50. Um, more often, it was three parts water, one part wine. So, you know, gallon, quart, however you mix it, four quarts of water, one quart of wine. And that, that was simply fermented grape juice. And, and that was done just to keep the bacteria from growing in the water. You know, you got stagnant water, no indoor plumbing. Or is it fresh water? It's not chlorinated to keep the bacteria count down. So they went through this process. <clears throat> if you wanted to get drunk on fermented grape juice that was mixed three quarts of water, let's even go with a stronger mixture, two quarts of water, two quarts of wine, fermented grape juice. I mean, you're going to have to be plowing the 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 wine the table wine right into yourself uh you know at length in order to get wine drunk um they accuse peter and the men with him uh acts chapter two when the holy spirit falls upon them and they're speaking in tongues they accuse them of being drunk with wine and peter makes a statement how could we possibly be drunk it's nine o'clock in the morning right Meaning, if we got up at the crack of dawn and we started drinking table wine, <laughs> there's no way that we could have even consumed enough uh, wine by this hour to have gotten ourselves drunk. So, you know, that's that's not possible at all. So, so here they shouldn't be given too much wine. That that habit of you know just consuming as much table wine or that type of mixture as they could in order to see themselves. Intoxicated, intoxicated teachers of good things. Um, you know, I, I I think about you know all of the garbage that people share with one another online. It's just the constant melee of you know really horrendous stuff that doesn't need to be shared, shouldn't be shared uh, with one another. Instead, in contrast, they should be teaching good things. You know, how to care for, as he's going to talk about, husbands, children, homes, you know, all that you need that, you know, life is uh, going to challenge you with. Your experiences as an older woman, older woman should be lent uh, to whoever uh, would inquire of you so that you can help them through life, you know. A younger woman might come and say, you know, I'm newly married. What do I do in these situations? You know, or, you know, I'm just you know, starting out with my children or how do I handle my, my finances? And, you know, and someone that's older with more experience can lend that help in the process. 
that they admonish the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. Now, this is something that I think is very significant and very often overlooked uh, within the church as far as instructions for older women, because the love that's spoken of here, we often think of as Christian love, like, uh, you know, agape love, like teach these, you know, the older women should teach, teach the younger women how to be like, you know, loving their husbands unconditionally, you know, that, that, that commitment, that steadfastness, that's certainly something that Paul and Titus and Timothy and all of these biblical teachers would want the women to be committed to. But this is talking about the warm affection. Okay. Um, take this to the realm of, you know, like little children or grandchildren, like, you know, how do those little people move your heart? You know what I'm saying? You just, you know, little, little tiny guys that are just super funny and, you know, want your attention and you want to just get right down on your knees and, you know, quit everything and play with them and hang out. And you should, you should want to have a heart, a warm heart to, to love them. This is that type of affection that he's referring to, that you, you would have an overwhelming sense of giddiness and fun and love and affection for. Notice that he says, you know, the older women, you need to instruct them that they would admonish the younger women to love their husbands. Listen, you know, I, I, I met an older man. Um, he was, I forget how long they'd been married. Husband and wife, I think they were in their 80s. And they told me they had been married for, goodness, it was like 60 years. And so I was impressed. Like, wow, man. I think it was like 62 years they'd been married. And uh, so, uh, you know, immediately stop and talk to them. They're holding hands. They're sitting together. They're talking. They're just cute as anything in their 80s. And uh, uh I said, man, like 62 years, that's, that, what a wonderful thing. You guys have been married. You know, I, I was, I, I was going to say bold, but maybe rude enough to ask, like, you've, you've only been married the one time. You have any, no, these are, we, we, we got married. We were very young. We've been married for 60 some odd years. I said, wow, that is wonderful. And the old guy says, yeah, feels like five minutes underwater. You know, <laughs> he just leaves that pause and then they both crack up. She's she's laughing and he's laughing and they're ribbing one another. You know, it, it's an unfortunate thing, right? A lot of people can can feel that way. You know, the, the first year, the first few years, you know, there there's the excitement, the honeymoon, the, the whatever life is beginning. And, you know, you get a decade in, you get 20 years in. And, you know, not, not so nice anymore. You know, just, you know, as Christians, yeah, we're committed to one another. Like we've signed a contract. <laughs> I, I think we can all recognize that's not what the Lord desires for Christian marriages. Right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Do we get that sense from Christ that he's like, yeah, I committed myself to them, you know? I don't think so. I think Christ loves us. 
warmly, affectionately. I think he has a deep passion for us. And here Paul is telling Titus, you know, essentially, if the older gals don't get this, you need to convey it to them that they need to be instructing the younger women how to be affectionate with their husbands and with their children. Because that, that can get lost along the way. You know, you, you, the, the struggles of life can take that away from you. Uh, and I think it's significant within this that that admonition comes from this apostle to this pastor to the women in the church to be loving, overpoweringly affectionate with your husbands and with your children. Ladies, are men not stupid? For real, I mean it. Our pride, our arrogance, our stupidity, our failures, our sin. I mean... Does that not scar you? <laughs> right? Does it not leave you in the place where you're like, yeah, I'm right down to just raw commitment here, you know? And we need to be encouraged that there's something more. There's something much more beautiful. There's something much more fulfilling in the relationship. It can be found. It can be generated. By you, this this scripture puts that on the shoulders of the women in the relationships. You know, the, the, the husband, the man in this situation, you know, he may find himself in a place where not only has he gone through these things, but now he's dealing with the hardships and the difficulties of life, and you know, then come home to the meeting of, yeah, no, notice how much the devil's trying to distract you? No, there's literally a guy outside the door right now washing his car. <laughs> Whenever junk goes on like this, you literally need to, I mean, here it's, it's 7 o'clock at night, and someone has pulled their car up outside our church door, and it has a power washer out there washing their car. Do you think... That your enemy wants to distract you from what I'm saying right now? Right? You know, uh, husbands, right. And the shortcomings you've, you've learned, you've seen, that they, they are as dumb as it comes. Right? We are. And, and, and we get caught up in the battle. Then add to it. Don't take this the wrong way. Uh, add to it a wife who has just relegated herself to the place of nothing but raw commitment. She's, she's looking at the relationship like, like what I'm doing here is agape. <laughs> right? Don't like him, but I'll stay with him. Why? Because I'm a Christian. You know what I'm saying? And it, it doesn't work well. It doesn't work well. Let me encourage you to, to hear what Paul is saying about the tender love, right? I mean, my grandson, Benjamin, today I come into this church and he is just like melt your heart smiles. You know, all, he's doing terrible things a couple hours ago out front telling his mom, what he's, you know, he's just a little baby and he's, he's wreaking havoc on the situation. 
but you know when I when I get stern with him and I turn around and say, "Hey, what do you think you're doing?" Uh, he says, you know, I throws his arms in the air and that beautiful little smile goes, "Hi," <laughs> you know, like, "Oh, never mind," you know what I'm saying? I just like the warm, affectionate feeling for my grandson immediately wipes out all of that. I'm I'm able to just have warm, affectionate feelings for my grandson. And, and and that's what you're being encouraged with here is, is to learn that process. Do we deserve it? Absolutely not. Right. Have we earned it? No way. You know, quite the opposite, but you know, you, you should be able to recognize you have an enemy who wants you to stick on that side of things. He doesn't deserve this. He, he you know, he hasn't earned this he ha- Yeah, you're right. We haven't. You know, and take it to heart, right? Neither have you earned it from Christ. And yet he gives it to you. He loves you. He's warm and affectionate and caring to you and for you. This is Christian nature that that we're being, you know, encouraged with here. The love, by definition, spoken of here in verse 4 is to be fond of have an affection or liking for, affectionate, loving, of a hope or belief, foolishly optimistic. How about that? All contained within the definition of this love that's being spoken of here. Foolishly optimistic. And lastly, this is going to hurt, but it's the truth. Even to the level of being naive. Like, like you got to overlook our faults in order to love us, right, ladies? I mean, there's, there's just no way. If, if, you, if you were keeping tally, at the end of every day, you'd be like, nope. <laughs> this guy, you know, rarely, right, do you end the day going, yeah, he really just deserves me to, you know, pour myself out upon him. Why? Because we're sinners. We, we're failures. You know, even at our best. Even filled with the Spirit, even walking with Christ, we're still human beings. Well, what would compel a woman to do this? Why would she treat her husband and her children this way? The love of Christ. The love of Christ alone. Well, what is the love of Christ? The root, and he's going to talk about it in uh, the next chapter especially, it's grace. It's the grace of God. You know, what? what is the grace of God? In modern vernacular it's it's a delete button is what it is right it's it's just constantly erasing all the time that that's that's what grace is it's it's never ending constantly getting rid of uh, the guilt the failure j- just the restoration so and enough uh, on that one subject verse 5. Uh, again, still speaking to the older women, to be discreet. Uh, th- that's the idea of like well-behaved, well-dressed, you know, not in a way that's flamboyant or provocative is what's being suggested. Chaste. The idea there is pure. Just one more time on the distraction here. Think about this, right? Everybody on Facebook's like wondering and everybody listening to the recording later, the, the, the ladies in the room. It's a it's raining outside. 
Why are they washing their cars right now? Other than to distract you. Right? I can talk to the men all day from these passages in the scripture and they would not come do that outside our door. I talked to the ladies in the room about this subject matter and this is what we get. Your, your enemy can actually, you know, fire up a pressure washer. It's, it's weird. But anyway, pay attention if you can. Be discreet, chaste, pure, homemakers. Now listen, this doesn't mean you have to be a stay-at-home mom, right? It, it does mean you can be, which I think flies in the face of the world because the world says you can't be a homemaker anymore. You can't, you can't be a stay-at-home mom. That's, there's something wrong with that. That's not true at all. You can be a stay-at-home mom. Right. Uh, you know, I have had a few different opportunities throughout the years to be the stay at home dad. Yeah, I have a very high respect for what it takes to be stay at home parent. The, the you know, the, the household, the, the, the cleanliness, your organization, the kids, the whole nine yards. It is seriously challenging to deal with that stuff. I, I get it. Within this, what he's saying is that women should not lose sight of their homes. You know, and, and that's, that's actually what our culture is promoting, is just go after a career and forget about home. That, that is most definitely what the world promotes. Uh, the scripture promotes women even being business women. You know, a lot of people act like, oh, the Bible is against women it, it it oppresses and suppresses women and you know puts them down very often uh, christianity will draw attention to proverbs chapter 31 because there uh, uh, lemuel is encouraged to find a woman who's very resourceful okay well something about her right she's a business owner she has her own money. She has her own line of credit. Her own, not her husband's. She buys and sells and purchases on her own name. She does business on her own name. Right? She, she has employees that answer to her. This, this is a model of exemplary woman that the scripture holds up. Right? So if, if you're a businesswoman, if you're a working mother, the scripture doesn't speak against that at all. But what it is saying is that we and the ladies need to be mindful of their home, to be a homemaker. You know, how does that work for you? Well, that's between you and God, because it's going to be different for every woman, right? Maybe she's found, you know, the right person to, uh, you know, watch her children to, you know, uh, maybe even, you know, she's, she's chosen the right person to, to educate her children. Yeah, or maybe she is a stay at home mom, but she has managed that herself. You can ask her about her home. You can ask her about her circumstances and she'll be able to tell you, she'll be able to answer you need to be actively involved in, in what's going on. And boy, doesn't the world push the opposite direction and, and want, uh, you know, especially mothers 
to neglect uh, the the household and the home and the children and and the being affectionate to uh, you know their children and to their husbands. So homemakers, good, just like it sounds, just generally good. You know, you know, you never want to have it be that when people mention your name, they're like, oh, you know, that person. <laughs> Oh, it should be the general sense of when your name is mentioned that people think, oh, I know her. And it's that sense of just they are a good person. This, this should be the, uh, you know, personality of a believer. Now, listen, the scripture is taking into account, Paul's taking into account, Titus is taking into account that uh, we have a sinful nature and this doesn't always come nat- natural to us. But as believers, these things should be our character. We should recognize, okay, I wasn't good. I didn't take care of these things. But now, as a Christian, as a believer, I need to. Now, I'll just skip the next few words, and we'll jump right over the next. It's much easier for me if I don't have to read you know, the next phrase. But, uh, well, okay, I will. Don't yell at me. Obedient to their own husbands. Boy, that's a, that's a tough one to uh, have to preach on. A lot of people look at this verse and they, they're upset with it. You know, imagine what it's like to be me and have to sit here and preach on it. So the simplicity of it is that Christian women are told to obey their husbands in the Lord. Now, here's the thing. Notice that here as it does everywhere else in the scripture, it says women are to obey their own husbands. Now, before you get offended, just follow me in what the scripture is saying, not what the world has done to you, not the way you've been abused, not the terrible things you've heard about, thought about, experienced, saw on, you know, some movie channel or anything like that. Just what's being said here. Obedient to their own husbands. Now, these are Christian women being told to obey their Christian husbands. Who, those Christian husbands, should fit all of the description of young men and men and older men that we've already read about. So, if a husband is all of the things that we've already read. Just jump back up to the beginning of this. Sober, reverent, you know, temperate, meaning self-control, sound in faith, in love, in patience. I mean, if that's the man you're living with, probably not all that hard to listen to if, if that's what's going on in the house. And that's what he's saying. Two parts to this. You are not commanded to be obedient to a husband who lives outside that. If a husband, even if he professes to be a Christian, and you can see he's come off the rails, this guy's in the flesh. He's angry and mad and misbehaving. You know, it's not that you need to be whipped by that person. The scripture does not call for you to be even emotionally crushed by your your daughter of the king. And there ain't no way that the king is saying, yeah, just put up with him. 
Let him tongue lash you. Let him throw you around. Let him mistreat you. You got to know your heavenly father would never call for his daughter to be treated like that. When it says here, obey your own husbands, it's in the Lord. Secondly, this isn't men being superior to women. It doesn't say obey men. Don't try to you know, be superior or rule over men. It says obey your own husbands. I've literally had men in this church that I've had to correct harshly because they thought women in the church were inferior to men and should all, all women should obey all men. Had a guy come up to me after a morning service and said, I forget how he worded it, but essentially uh, what he said was, I didn't realize I was coming to a liberal church. And I was like, um, like, I would not thought of myself as a liberal pastor. I wouldn't have thought of this as a liberal church. And, oh, yeah, he's assuring me. Yep, you guys are. I'm thinking, like, what is this about? Right. And what it was all about was uh, my all three of my daughters were leading worship that morning and my wife and my wife prayed uh, three times during the song service. She prayed at the beginning. She prayed when we received tithes and offerings. And then she prayed when we ended the song service. And, you know, she encouraged people to greet one another before we got into the word. So, so he's telling me we're a liberal church because I allowed a woman to pray in the church. And I, you know, I asked like, where did you like get, like, where does this come from? Oh, he, he ranges all over. And everything that he's saying is men are superior to women. And, you know, he's not, he's not taking it from the scripture. It's just his mindset. Men are superior to women. He goes through this. He's totally sexist. And the conclusion of the thing is he tries to take Paul telling the Corinthian church that women pray they should have their heads covered. And he does a whole weird thing with that. And I let him finish. And I said, yeah, okay, you're wrong on all of those points. But let me just point out that you made the point that women are allowed to pray in church as long as they do it according to the scripture. And he, he, you could tell, he'd never realized that about his own position. My point, there are men throughout our society and throughout Christianity that think that they have lordship over women. And do yourself a favor. Do all your sisters in Christ a favor. Do me a favor. Don't put up with men who act like that. Put them right in their place. The only man you are ever called to be in submission to is your own husband if he's in submission to the Lord. If he's not in submission to the Lord, right? I mean, blatant example, right? Read an article recently of a husband who has decided that how he's going to improve his family's circumstances, they're going to become pot dealers. Going to grow medical marijuana and supply some of the recreational places. And, you know, as a family, the wife was opposed to it. But, you know, he's got a good sound business plan. And so off they go. 
Listen, if your husband comes home with some cockamamie plan like that, you know, feel free to set him straight as a Christian woman. The Lord has not called you to be in submission to sinfulness. So here, when you're, you're being told obedient to their own husbands, it's in the Lord, right? That doesn't mean, uh, you know, you can pitch a fit every day and whip your husband emotionally until he's in the place you think he should be spiritually. But it is the idea that if you can recognize uh, this guy is totally off his rocker spiritually, you don't have to follow him to Waco, Texas. You know what I'm saying? You, you don't have to move to Oregon and join a cult. You don't have to. It, 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 this is this is Paul admonishing Titus to encourage women who have good Christian husbands to be in submission to their husband. And the reason is, if there are two heads in the household, then the direction of the household is always going to be split. You know, there needs to be a singularity of leadership in homes. And that needs to be husbands. And and husband, if you're not doing a good job at that, wake up, smell the roses, do what's right. Follow Christ with your life so that your wife will be able to follow you in all things. So being obedient to their own husbands that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Right? So here's the picture. Here's a good godly husband, and he's representing Christ and representing the church and representing the home, and they're out in public, and here's a rebellious wife who's correcting him and scolding him and telling him off and not submitting, and, and what does the world see? You know, this is supposed to be a Christian home, and what it is is actually divided. There's, there's no peacefulness. There's no calm, Christ. There's no unity being created. The encouragement is that like the body of Christ, Christ is the head of the church. The church is submission to Christ. Husband is head of the household. Family is in submission to that leadership. It needs to be that good, clean singularity that is seen there. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. You can compile everything that's been said previously into each one of these statements, whenever there's a likewise, right? So uh, give you all this direction and insight and sober-minded and reverent and then women, likewise, in the same manner. And then all of that that was just said, young men, and likewise. All of these things as much as possible apply to the next level of what's being explained. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, and that sober-minded very much has the idea of not to think more of themselves than they should. Uh, you know, sober-minded, uh, even when he's talking about uh, the older men in verse 2, doesn't have the same tone as it does with the younger men. I was just sharing with uh, Steve the other night, you know, in uh, military terms, uh, they, they have that, they, they love to use acronyms, you know, construction of letters, KIA, right? Killed in action. In the ministry, we use KIA also, but it stands for know it all, 
Right. And the results are the same. <laughs> right. Destruction. Bad things happen when somebody's KIA. Somebody in the ministry that's KIA is a mess. They're a disaster. Young men, they should not be KIA. Yeah, this, uh, there's another one that's uh, IKB. We use that one, which is I know, but, you know, <laughs> you teach somebody something and you no sooner get done saying whatever comes from the scripture and they respond with, I know, but, and then they try to, you know, put in their two cents worth. Why? Because they aren't sober-minded. They think more of themselves than they should, right? Can you look back to when you were a teenager and recognize, boy, I wish I'd kept my mouth shut a whole lot more, you know? Wish I had listened more. I ran my mouth more than I opened my ears. I can look back at my 20s and think the same 30s, 40s. Which tells me right now at 52 years old, same is probably true right now. I mean, if it's if I can look back at each decade and recognize, man, I, I should have had a more humble spirit. I should have been much more ready to listen and to learn. And that tells me that right now where I think I'm doing it well, I'm probably not. I probably should be listening. So hear what the scripture is saying about being sober-minded and not thinking more of yourself than you should. In the same respect to younger men, in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. That's an interesting term. Young men showing themselves to be a pattern of good works. The idea is the impression of a dye or a mold, right? You might have, you know, worked with leather somewhere along the way, and you take that stamp and you put it on the lever, leather, and you take the hammer and you smack the mold, and it leaves the impression on the leather. The leather, or, or maybe you've, you know, molded candles, or you've poured something into something and you pop it open, and what was in the dye, what was in the cast, is left on the clay or the wax or whatever, you know, has been molded that way. That's the impression of what he's saying here. The pattern is the idea of your life should be so molded and fashioned after Christ that you leave an impression. You, you, you impact where you go. You touch and mold and shape like appropriately. Not that just you're just tearing things up and marking things up and scarring things up, but that you're leaving that impression of Christ, that impression of Christ, that impression of Christ all along the way. That, that, that is a thing that should be exemplary of, you know, good, godly, young Christian men. Still speaking to the young men in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity. That means you're going to have to study reverence, incorruptibility, you, you, know, you, you know, the reverence, respect, incorruptibility. Uh, you can't take a strong stance and then somebody just tempts and pushes and prods and then you fall apart. It needs to be that we've taught and trained 
our young men in such a way that they cannot be polluted, is what he's saying. Sound speech, verse says, 8 says, the young men need to be of sound speech. That literally, in this case, is referring to not uh, telling dirty jokes. Isn't that interesting? That their sound speech should not, never should it be that young men, you know, say something and, you know, then at the ask, at the end of it, they go, you know what I mean? You know, and, they, and, they, and everybody's left going, gosh, I hope I don't. This should not be at all part of the speech, part of the conduct at all. You know, I mean, if somebody sets your meal down in front of you, right, in the restaurant, and just as they step away, says, uh, you'll have to search around. There, there is some cyanide in that. <laughs> I, I beg your pardon? Did you say cyanide? in my meal but it's not much I don't care if it's not much I don't care if they say it's only on the left side right I'm not going to go well okay I'll, I'll eat from the right side if you're telling me there's poison on my plate then I don't want any of this plate and that's, that's the impression that Paul is giving here in that the speech, it shouldn't be foul jokes. There shouldn't be these sorts of things in the mouths and the conduct and the speech of young Christian men. This is not part of who we are. It's, it's a terrible thing to find that to be the case. That cannot be condemned. Your sound speech should be given in such a way that no one could ever say, well, I think what he meant was something that was perverted. No. You know, that people know your integrity and they know your speech in such a way that if anybody ever said that, everyone who knows you would say that that's not true. That can't be right. That person would never speak that way. It's not part of their existence. It's not part of their personage in any way that cannot be condemned. That one who is an opponent may be ashamed. So even if they brought it up. I, it's funny, I had forgotten this. I worked for Daigle Oil Company years ago, and uh, a customer came in, and she was especially difficult. And then when I um, gave her her change back, um, she insisted that she had given me a larger bill and that I was shortchanging her. And I quickly, because, you know, we set it on top of the drawer. We don't put it in the drawer, right? We, we put the bill on top of the drawer. We ring it up. We give the change. And we all had been trained and we were in the habit of you wait until they've walked away. You wait until they're gone. And then you put it in the drawer. And, uh, I, I was able to just pick up her bill and say, no, this, this is your bill right here. This is the money that you handed me. And, oh, she starts to go off completely. And I look at my manager, and um, he, he's like, just give her the change. So I drop it in the drawer, and I give her back the change she says she's supposed to get. You know what? <laughs> You're one customer. 
thousands of customers go through here every day. You know, so we're going to lose whatever it was, five, ten bucks. You know, here's the money. Much better that we preserve the reputation of the business, right? This is, this is our habit. I just, okay, you know, back in the day when the customer was always right, I mean, you don't find that much today. But anyway, I, I, I hand it over to her. She goes on her way. She calls management the next day and complains about me and tells them I was cussing her out and I said all kinds of terrible things to her. And management, told by the end of the conversation, told her off. Because they knew me. I'm, I'm the, the Christian at church, you know, who shows up early, who works hard, who shares my faith with everybody, who helps out, who even in that case gave her her money back. And management listened to her right up until the point where she's telling them that I was swearing at them. And they were like, no, he wasn't. <laughs> they know me well enough that they were like, no, that's that's not true. You know, we're, we're sorry that you had a bad experience and we're sorry that you feel this way. But what you're saying, we now know it can't be true. The owner of the company came to me and explained that she had defended me and that she knew uh, she and, and it wasn't she wasn't probing at all. She came to me in such a way and just said, I, I know that's not true. I know that can't be true about these circumstances. Because I, I was a person who was constantly sharing my faith and living. I, I really appreciated at that point, not not my own, you know, pride, not my own uh, thoughts of myself. I appreciated the fact that the Holy Spirit had done that in my life. I mean, if you had just rewound the tape uh, two years, I was a full-on criminal. I, I was horrible. I was a terrible human being that probably those things would have been true about, you know, to just a couple of years previously, two years later, the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, everyone I'm working with goes, no, that's, that's not true. I don't, I don't even have to defend myself. Others are saying not true. can't be not going to, not going to listen to that. Here it is in this situation that, that they're there, you know, that anyone that might try to condemn you, that anyone who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. And much better to just have that constant, clear conscience about your conduct. No accusation can stick. Exhort bond servants to be obedient to their masters. There were 60 million slaves in Rome at this time, you guys. Think about that, right? There's 310, 320, depending on who you listen to, million Americans right now. 60 million slaves. That's a remarkable number. And Paul is admonishing them to be obedient to their masters. Right. Why? Because they are actually owned. You know, the laws and the circumstances change. Great. But presently, the entire law that they are under, they are called to be obedient. It's a difficult thing to imagine. The scripture is not endorsing slavery in any way. It condemns it. But within this setting, Paul is saying there's no call for anyone to break the law of the land and to rebel against their master. Closest thing that we can get 
in our country is uh, the idea of employment. You know, if, if you have a, uh, a, an employer that you serve, then you should be obedient to that employer. Your example should be that you are following the things that he wants you or she wants you to do. To employees, be obedient to your own employer. To be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back. Look at verse 10. Not pilfering. Okay, One of the things, this, this is the idea of petty theft. This is exactly what it means. Well, you wouldn't even believe it. I mean, they just, they throw boxes of these pens away. So, you know, so I bring them home. Whatever. You know, they were just going to throw them in the trash. Do you have permission to bring them home? Does the company know you brought them home? (laughs) Because otherwise you're taking from them. One of the ways that pilfering occurs, and it is biblical to bring this up, one of the ways that pilfering occurs more than any other way is in stolen time. Stolen time. If you're on the clock, you're supposed to be working for your employer every single minute you're on the clock. Every single minute. I mean, if your employer has a policy that, no, you just sit in this chair and you answer that phone and the people that walk through that door, you greet them. That's your job. You're doing your job. But if your job is to be labor, then labor should be occurring all the time. You should be working for that employer. Otherwise, you're stealing minutes. Well, it's only minutes, right? Petty theft is the idea. As a believer, this should not be who we are, but showing all good fidelity, right? That that term fidelity has the understanding of consistent predictability, that you don't have, oh, I'm productive sometimes, and at other times I'm, you know, taking from them. Not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Two parts to this. The, um, the adornment, right? You think of putting a decoration upon, right? The good behavior and, and the lack of pilfering should be an adornment along with that, the praises that are going to come. This whole scenario of what's being described here is that this should be a decoration to the doctrine of God, our Savior in all things. The good conduct of employees should lend a beautiful appearance to the doctrine of our faith and our God and Savior. Something that dresses it up, right? That makes it look good, that you know, is attractive, literally attracting the attention of, causes people to look upon. We're going to have failures. We're not going to be perfect, and we're not always going to be exemplary. Charles Spurgeon said, I'm not what I should be. But I'm not what I was or what I will be. There's a process 
that's ongoing. So wherever you are in these things, don't be discouraged. Take it to heart. Be encouraged that, you know, you can see some of these things and think, I'm nailing it. You see other things and think, I am blowing it. <laughs> wherever you're at, take the encouragement from it and know that the Lord is working in your life. Verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The grace of God. Paul speaks more about the grace of God than any of the other apostles. It's hard to imagine, right? You think about John, the apostle of love. He only directly mentions the grace of God some five times. Peter, who screwed up so much and was so reliant upon the grace of God, only has seven direct mentions of the grace of God in his writings. Paul, more than 120 times, mentions the grace of God. That's probably because he was such a murderous wretch, right? He was so terrible to the body of Christ that he understands, I'm only in this program because of the grace of God. And so he becomes a minister of the grace. And he has so much to say about the grace of God. With that said, as I searched through statements on the grace of God, I found that Peter had two of the most remarkable. First uh, Peter chapter 4, verse 10, he says, As each one receives a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Manifold grace of God. Um, it does have the idea, some of us are more familiar with uh, like a mechanical manifold, right? Where um, in your car, uh, the cylinders explode with the internal combustion and the fire and exhaust comes out each one of those ports and they travel down where all of those tubes meet one more tube and go out the back of the car, okay? That manifold where each one of those tubes comes out and is combined together work the opposite direction. The grace flows in one direction from Christ as a whole, and it's distributed to you and you and you and me and you, and we then are to distribute it to whoever the Lord puts in our lives. We manifold the grace of God outward. And it's the sense, it actually has this idea of being multicolored. The way Peter writes it, it it's really quite picturesque. It's the idea of the grace of God is going to look different in everybody's life. It's going to flow into my life in one way, and then I'm going to dispense it to you in a way that's different than I received it. Uh, you know, what a picture of the grace of God, the way it fits everything, you know, that, that, you know, you need the grace of God as much as I need the grace of God, as much as somebody else needs the grace of God, this, this multifaceted aspect to what the Lord is doing. Now that, that grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. That's not to say all men have received it, right? Because there are people that reject it. They don't want it. But what it does in the appearance to all people, verse 12, teaching us 
that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly. Oh, think about the way that grace is taught in the church today. God's grace, just go live however you want to. More and more that's taught. Just God's grace covers it. Don't worry about it. Live however you want to. Be a complete heathen sinner. Just, you know, wear the label of Christianity. God will accept you. Exactly the opposite. Paul is saying here, the grace of God that brings salvation to all men is teaching us to move away from ungodliness and to leave behind the lusts of our flesh and the lusts of the world. That we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Right? You know, people look at the world around us and they go, well, I mean, they didn't, they didn't live in our time. Look how terrible things are. Surely, you know, the, the Bible is out of date, irrelevant, doesn't apply to where we are at. No, it very much applies. If you looked at the conduct of the churches and the communities that Paul was ministering to, you would blush with embarrassment for the conduct of the people of those environments. Corinth was unbelievable in its sinfulness. Unbelievable. Open prostitution was expected of all of the young women whose families were part of the Temple of Diana or whatever sexual goddess. They, they were expected to serve at least a year in open prostitution. It, it was shrugged off. Like, yeah, of course. Open drunkenness, debauchery, you know, it was commonly said that the men of that era, era should have a wife to bear their children, that they should have a mistress for excitement and adventure, they should have a concubine to serve their pleasures, and that they should have basically a girlfriend. Is that for, for women? I mean, I wonder how the ladies thought about that, right? That was the common thought of the culture. And Paul sends these young men in amongst these communities and says, go straighten these people out to walk according. So this whole mindset today within Christianity, like, ah, we just, you know, it's a so Christianity is a social club. We don't worry about those things. No, no here's Paul saying us that what the grace of God delivers us to is... Uh, you know, away from ungodliness, lusts, that we should live soberly, regardless of what the present age is teaching, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearance of our God, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to jump to the Greek lesson in that last statement first. The Granville Sharp rule there says that our great God is our Savior, Jesus Christ. So anybody that tries to tell you that God the Father is one entity and Jesus Christ is another entity, this verse and many others, and actually a couple within the remainder of this book, teach us that they are one and the same. And that's what's being said right there. One, we are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, something that I want you to understand from verse 13 is Paul is saying emphatically that the only thing 
This is, this is one of the strongest verses in the whole New Testament about this. The only thing you should be looking for is the appearing of Jesus Christ. That's it. Not, not the Antichrist. Not the mark of the beast. Not the tribulation. Not Bill Gates' vaccine. The only thing you should be looking for as a Christian is the imminent, immediate return of Jesus Christ. That's where your focus should be. This, this, this verse is so emphatic about that, that if you take the doctrine of Jesus Christ's return in all of the other places in the New Testament that are mentioned, and you apply this verse to it, then that's all that it means is our only hope, our only focus, our only conduct should be under the idea that Jesus Christ can return now. Think about that, right? If you're not functioning under the grace of God, then you're hoping he'll wait five more minutes, five more days, five more months, right? There's just some things I'm doing that, I, I shouldn't be doing it. Hear me, right? Because the grace of God is supposed to be delivering you from these things, right? Not just covering them up and smoothing them over. They're supposed to be draining that poison. Like we talked about last week, draining that poison out of your life. If that's the, the, the present state of you living under the grace of God, that this stuff is being washed away, not part of me. My conduct is proper. Why? Because the grace of God has removed, is removing these things presently. Then you can say, Lord, come quickly. Come now. If you're not living that way, then you're hoping and praying that he'll come later. This idea is our whole existence is the, the immediate return of Christ. Verse 14, who gave himself for us. And that for us in the Greek language is instead of us. Right? He gave himself instead of us. We, we were supposed to be marched up that hill to the cross. And instead, he stepped in and said, I'll take that. I'll take the punishment that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. Don't take special as a compliment because it would be better translated in English as it is in the King James, which means peculiar. And it really does mean odd. <laughs> you know, special as in you know, boy, they're kind of special. Right. You know, we, we, we aren't grand. He didn't look down and go, oh, there's perfect. Well, I'll take that one. It was a matter of he took us because nobody else wanted us. We were the rejects. And he said, yeah, I'll take that one. I'll take that one. You don't like it? I'll take that one. I'll take that one. Oh, the world embraces you and loves you and you don't have time for me? Then you go be amongst those that love you and want you. I'll take the special ones <laughs> that nobody else wants. Maybe a totally stupid example. We get Christmas chocolates. 
my wife's method is to bite in them and find out what's there. And if she doesn't care for it, just put it back for you. Because they're the family chocolates, you know what I'm saying? I'm going to eat them. I don't care. But if you show up at my house and you want a chocolate, you're not, you're not going to look in the box and think, oh, I can see through those teeth marks <laughs> that that's the Roman nougat I really like. I'll take that one. This is the idea of what Christ has done. He's taken the special ones <laughs> with the teeth marks in them for himself. The, the ones that he's going to use. What for? Uh, a special people zealous for good works. People say that about you? You're crazy. You're over the top. You're just always sharing Jesus with people. Why do you just shut up? Yeah. A little Christianity is fine, but you're taking it way too far. Nope. No, no, no. That's part of the special. That's part of the fact that Jesus wants you. Is because life sank its teeth into you and then spit you out. And Christ came along and said, I'll take that one. And the fact that he didn't spit you out. He kept you and he loved you causes you to boldly proclaim to the world, I belong to Jesus. He is mine, I am his. That's the idea that's being promoted here. Speaking these things, exhorting and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Speak these things, exhort, teach and rebuke. Say things boldly to people that need to be said. Uh, I uh, uh, have many times confronted people who don't even know I'm a pastor, don't even know I'm in the crowd, and you know it'll come up and they'll say, oh, the Bible, full of contradictions. Oh, I'll jump right forward and say, name one. And I have, so far, I have, I have only, I used to say I've had nobody. I've only had one person uh, actually say, uh, in the Old Testament, it, it taught eye for an eye. In the New Testament, Jesus said, turn the other cheek. That's a contradiction, he said. And I explained to him that the Old Testament, when it said eye for an eye, was a limitation because it used to be, you know, we got in a fight and you knocked my tooth out. So I'd go to your house and kill all your cattle, and burn your house to the ground. So the scripture, the Old Testament, put a limitation on it to say, hey, 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 if somebody knocks your tooth out, the maximum you can do is knock somebody else's tooth out. You don't you don't get to slaughter their family is what the Lord was saying. So then move that to the New Testament, and Jesus is adding to that graciousness and saying, you know, it's okay if they strike you on one cheek, if, if you turn the other one. So it isn't a contradiction, right? Jesus' statement was a complement to what the Old Testament had already set as a boundary. My point within it, <clears throat> I, I'm anxious to jump into the mix and, and rebuke and exhort and say things to people that need to be said, even in public, to, to get involved with the conversation. We need to be that special people who are zealous for 
such occasions. Oh, you could lose your job. Yeah, I've been through that too. Uh, preaching too much until they finally said, you're fired. Great. And Christ continues to take care of me to this day. The Lord will sustain us. We need to be his special people. And especially, especially in this day and age when we see our culture so messed up, all the more we need to be preaching for our king. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your love and your graciousness in our lives. And I pray that you would help us to live for you. Thank you for the patience of my brothers and sisters. And my going along this evening, I pray that it would minister to them. And anyone else who watches this message online or later, that their hearts and lives would be changed by your word. Minister to us all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.